I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, Stuart Smith joins us to discuss the controversies, myths, and life of Nazi SS Commando Otto Skorzeny, as explored in his book, Otto Skorzeny, The Devil's Disciple. An imposing figure right down to the distinctive scar on his face, Skorzeny is a figure one could imagine being the villain in a James Bond novel. And in fact, as you'll find out in the conversation to follow, there is a connection between Skorzeny and one of Ian Fleming's famous 007 adventures. Skorzeny is no fictional character, however. He was involved in a number of special operations during World War II, and in the aftermath of that war, skirted justice. In the decades following Hitler's demise, Skorzeny remained an unrepentant Nazi. Well known for his involvement in an operation that sought to rescue Benito Mussolini during the war. Rather than being punished for his crimes, he ended up dying a wealthy man. This is the story of Otto Skorzeny, Nazi SS Commando, with Stuart Smith, author of Otto Skorzeny, The Devil's Disciple. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really excited to be speaking with on a rather interesting 
historical topic. Stuart Smith, author of Otto Scorzini, The Devil's Disciple. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well and very pleased to be here. So, Stuart, if you could, maybe you could tell my listeners who Otto Scorzini was in case there's younger listeners that uh, don't know about this infamous Nazi. Right. Well, not everyone regards him as infamous. He's certainly, shall we say, he had a rather mottled character. But what makes us talk about him today is the very fact that he wasn't entirely a Bond villain. There were some appealing, charismatic uh, aspects to his, his nature. Now, to begin, at, to begin in the middle, in fact, the only reason we know anything really significant about Otto Skorzeny is because he is the man, as a German commander, commando, uh, who in 1943 is associated with the recapture of Benito Mussolini in Italy, who'd been arrested by his own side, and was about to be handed over to the Allies as a kind of war trophy in the hope that the Italians, who were allied to the Germans at the time and were losing the war because the Allies had already landed in Sicily and they were about to land on the mainland. So the thinking in Rome by the king and his generalissimo was, who were in charge of the country by then, was we can probably strike. I know the Allies have said it's going to be unconditional surrender. But I think we can strike a deal. And the way we're going to strike a deal is we're going to hand over Mussolini, the Duce, the fascist leader who's led uh, Italy for the best part of 20 years. Uh, and uh, the deal will be a kind of show trial and the Allies will let us off lightly. And the Germans were equally determined to prevent this happening. They were determined to prevent it happening because they needed a partially political solution in Italy because if Italy were pulled out of the war, God knows how many military divisions that would mean out, out of the German uh, hinterland, the back end of their lines, and they were committed heavily to a war in Russia. And so they needed someone, and Mussolini was that person, Hitler decided, and it's a totalitarian regime, so what Hitler thought and said actually really mattered. Uh, they were going to rescue uh, Mussolini, come what may, before he went to the Allies. So it was, a, it was a tense decision. The raid was a very audacious one involving gliders and ground troops, um, uh, alighting on a sort of mountain fastness, a, a ski resort in the middle of the Abruzzi Mountains, which is the middle of Italy, uh, carried out under very, very difficult conditions, which was wholly successful. Now, Scorsini was part of that expedition, and he did play a legitimate and useful part in it. But the problem was that he claimed all the credit. He was able to claim the credit because he was part of an elite armed force, the Waffen-SS, which of course was part of the more general SS and the SS high command at the time, which of course was uh, ultimately led by Himmler, was very interested in, shall we say, stabbing the Luftwaffe, which had actually carried out the raid, and the Wehrmacht generally, which is the German armed forces, the sort of Prussian bread armed forces, in the back at a time when they were losing the war. So there was a political logic to what they were doing. So Scorsini, however, turned out, you know, he was a, he was a, um, a hugely physically impressive specimen, a real athlete. He was about six foot four. He weighed about 200 pounds. Um, he looked a super, he looked like a Hollywood casting couch hero, the, the ultimate commander. Uh, and indeed, in some ways he was, although there were great flaws in his character, but we'll no doubt come to those later. 
So he was their boy, the SS boy, and they were doing everything they could to jockey his position up. And that became easy when, you know, you were a friend of Goebbels, the chief propagandist of a Nazi regime. Goebbels handed uh, uh, Skortseni when he got back to Berlin. Uh, the, the, the microphone prompted him, tutored him on what to say and do. He exaggerated somewhat. Then he got on to, you know, every, every uh, newspaper and uh, cinema reel in the world covered news of this because the uh, expedition had take cam taken cameramen and journalists along with them. So the impression got out, much to the chagrin of the people he was fighting with during this operation, that he alone had masterminded it and effectively carried it out. Now, there was some truth in that, but it's more nuanced, as it usually is with military operations. So that's, in a nutshell, is why he came to fame. Is there anything else you can say about the controversies uh, with regards to his involvement in, in Mussolini's, the, the rescue mission? Like, what, what did the other figures involved in that mission have to say about the sort of myth-making around Scorzini? Well, they had an awful lot to say, but they were, they were fairly muted at the time because basically once the expedition had been carried out, uh, Hitler himself, who had appointed um, uh, Skorzeny as his sort of special emissary on the, the expedition to safeguard Mussolini when he was brought back, a kind of police duty, in fact. Hitler thought that, um, well, he's, he, thought, he, he just thought that uh, ultimately Skorzeny, who'd managed to steal some of the glory by landing first from one of the gliders and actually uh, rescuing Mussolini without firing a shot, I mean, it was, it was a tremendous bluff, and he was very, uh, one, one can say that he was very uh, cool-headed about the whole thing. It could have ended in as a, as a nasty shooting match, which might have succeeded in rescuing Mussolini, but at greater cost on both sides, or alternatively, because the Italian guards had uh, orders to do this, Mussolini could have been shot once, once they realized what's going on. So the operation, though the minute aspects of it were bungled, as they often are in special operations. They don't go that smoothly usually. You know, you, 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 he landed, he was a cool thinker. He used his common sense. He kept the guns on safety catches because after all, the Italians themselves were confused about which side they were fighting on. So he didn't want to provoke a battle unnecessarily. But the truth of the matter is behind all this was an accident. He wasn't meant to land first at this hotel, which was called the uh, Campo uh, Imperatore. Um, which was you know, a ski resort built in 1938. And it was, in, it was almost impregnable at the time. It had, you could only get access to it from the ground by a cable car. So there had to be a ground assault to seize the cable car at the bottom. And also they decided the only other way to get in there was a glider. And uh, <clears throat> what happened at this point was a lot of these people, uh, the, the, the operation itself, had to be sorted out in double quick time. And it had to be planned by people who knew what they were doing. Uh, and this was the Luftwaffe contingent. So I'm coming to the controversy bit here. Um, the, actually, the expedition was in the hands of uh, Germany's uh, foremost airborne soldier, part of the Luftwaffe, obviously, uh, for, uh, part of the Luftwaffe. His name was uh, uh, Kurt Student. He'd launched this epic and iconic uh, glider landing when, they, when the German army was seizing Belgium in the early part of the war. 
He'd also organized less successfully, it has to be said, the, the landing on Crete, airborne landing on Crete, which eventually routed the British there in 1941. So he had a good track record behind him. Uh, he wasn't a political man himself. He, he, he liked to leave that to others. And he wasn't a great speaker. And it was decided by Hitler after a beauty parade that, that uh, Scorsini was the one who was going to go along with him, supposedly as a Luftwaffe adjutant. Uh, they didn't want to sort of arouse suspicion by being dressed in SS uniforms. The Italians might not, they might sniff a rat. Um, but the, the operation itself was in the hands of someone called Major Moores, Major Harold Moores, who was an expert on uh, glider assaults. Uh, Moores decided on the day, which was September the 12th, or just shortly beforehand, in fact, that the best thing to do was a, a, a twin prong attack. And he, perhaps politically speaking, made the mistake of leading the ground forces to the uh, base camp uh, near this hotel. As I said, the only way up was by the ski lift at the time, not the ski lift, the, uh, the cable car at the time. Whereas Skortseni was among those paratroopers, Luftwaffe paratroopers, there are about 20 SS men, but mostly they were Luftwaffe paratroopers from this unit, Moore's unit, which uh, set off to land, an extremely dangerous landing, especially at that time of day because of the thermals and it had never been tried before at that kind of height. A student had told them there was a probability of 80% casualties. In fact, it didn't happen like that. Um, and an accident happened on the way as they were trying to uh, gain height over, over Tivoli, which is about halfway from where they took off from at Frascati. Um, the lead three gliders with the, para, with the uh, Luftwaffe paratroopers who were supposed to carry out the storming of the hotel actually had to circle again to gain more height. At which point uh, the, the uh, paratroopers in the second set of three, they always flew in threes. Uh, this is part of German aerial military tactics, uh, overtook them. And it was just a fluke that in the first of the second lot, the fourth glider, in other words, was Scorsini. And in the fifth one, his deputy Raddle and various other SS commanders. So when they landed, they crash landed, actually. It was a highly dangerous landing, but they weren't badly injured. Uh, Scorsini was almost the first person to get out of the fuselage. And, and um, he took his advantage and ran with it. So by the time that the rest of the um, Luftwaffe paratroopers who were supposed to be in charge of the tactical aspects of this, this, this assault landed, he had already rescued Mussolini. In fact, he was enjoying a, enjoying a drink with him and his, and his Italian companions. And uh, then there was a photo shoot because the journalists turned up and it all looked on camera as if, if Scorsini had managed the whole thing. So the Luftwaffe uh, and its various units from Student and Goering, of course, at the top of the Luftwaffe, were not very happy about that. They, there was a big battle back in the what's called the Wolf's Lair, the Bolschanze, where Hitler, Hitler was installed at that time, where all the meetings had gone on about planning the operation in the first place during the summer. Uh, There's a big battle between, uh, be between the SS chiefs, uh, particularly Himmler and Goering, over who should get the glory. Uh, Goering was in decline by then. He'd um, mucked up Stalingrad uh, by failing to pr provide a, a decent air bridge uh, for the encircled troops there at the beginning of the year. And then, of course, the massive 24-7 um, bombing 
by the um, the RAF and uh, U.S. Air Force, uh, which which began to raise German cities to the ground in the middle of that year, just before all this took place. So Goering was on the in, in the descent, and the SS was in the ascent, and their boy had apparently done it all himself. Not true, but that's how it looked. And indeed, Churchill himself noticed the operation. He said in Hansard, the record of uh, parliamentary affairs in the House of Commons, the official record, that, you know, it was a stroke of great daring and it, it proved many possibilities in modern warfare. He acknowledged it. He must have been very aware and he would have seen Scott Senny on the, on the, on the uh, film, uh, the, 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 the film, uh, the cinema reels that went around thereafter. So the impression came out, he'd done it pretty much himself. He hadn't. So th this is interesting, and, and we'll get more into Scorsini's other operations and maybe, but what I find interesting is it seems like there's a lot of um, myth-making about Scorzini. What What's the cause of that myth-making? Is it just the biographies of him over the years? And for instance, his memoirs, like I, I think uh, he had uh, the My Commando Operations memoir and then Scorzini's special missions, and he sort of becomes known as the most dangerous man in Europe. Uh, what, what's, but, but you're sort of demythologizing him in a way. So where do you think a lot of the myth-making comes from? Well, he was, let's start with a sort of general observation. He was iconic in a way that saints can be iconic, but we don't often know much about the personal lives of saints. They're often quite faulted, or we might regard from a 21st century perspective, their lives are being faulted. We know a lot more about the personal life of uh, Scott Saini, certainly that he was no saint. However, there are aspects of his behavior which were immensely appealing from his physical presence onwards. He could be very charming when he chose to be. He was a very good networker. I mean, the, you know, the number of important people he met of all sorts through his life staggers belief. Um, and I think the other thing about him flowing from this is that, all right, Goebbels gave him a leg up with the microphone and, and the, uh, the right to appear on these highly important German propaganda reels that went out every week, Die Wochenschau, it's called, which was a weekly show, which basically gave Germans their, their update on war, the war's progress. But it turned out Scott Saini, although he hadn't really realized it until then, was a natural self-publicist. And he played this record uh, throughout the war, after the war, and he found there was a very, after the war, he found there was a very ready, well, there were ready, very ready constituencies among the allies as well. Uh, uh, you know, but he, he left, uh, if you like, uh, German propaganda behind and he found the Western media instead. And on the back of that, he wrote uh, several books, which were self-glorifying extreme and um, you know, they, they, they had no scrupulous attention to the facts behind them. They, they, they were broadly true. I mean, he'd been present at some of these things, but uh, they, were, they were devoid of any moral complications like his political beliefs. It looked like a real boy's own image. And he was helped in this by journalists. For example, um, in 1952, when he'd been two years, he'd, he'd, he was in exile, but he, he went to live in Madrid which is basically where he was for the rest of his life, although he flew all over the world. Um, he, he tried to keep incognito with this ridiculous pseudonym, Ralph Steinbauer, but no one was, uh, um, no one was um, put off by this. No one was confused by this, certainly not uh, the CIA, which um, was in constant contact with him covertly anyway to keep tabs on it. Um, 
uh, uh, the but uh, he uh, his cover was broken, and a journalist from the Daily Express in London. Uh, it, it's important to bear in mind the Daily Express uh, was probably the biggest single paper in 1952. It had a, a, a circulation of four to five million, and their foreign editor uh, got a scoop, tracked him to his lair, gave him an interview, serialized his exploits wrote a book about him. His name was Charles Foley, this guy, uh, uh, um, called Commander Extraordinaire, Extraordinary. Uh, and this sealed his fame, I think. In the, he'd already written his own, um, his own memoirs, Geheim Commando in German in 1950, but as you can imagine, it didn't have too much of a, a circulation. It was confined by its language. He, he, he did speak quite good English, but not uh, good enough English initially to write his own English language version. But from this combination of his own books and journalism, which was heavily dependent on interviews with him and not too many other critical people, not till much later, uh, a kind of myth grew up about what he'd done during the Second World War uh, and also his almost uh, sort of mystical insights into special operations. And there were one or two things about his special operations, which do deserve closer scrutiny. But I, I was going to say real quick, I, there's almost like a, um, I, I feel like the fascination with him in some ways is that, uh, you know, he presents his, his, his special ops knowledge and, and whatnot. And it's, it, it can almost be appealing in like a, um, a, a sort of pulp way. Like uh, for for people that enjoy adventure novels, yeah, and whatnot. absolutely right. Yes, at a superficial level, it's very appealing, and he's the ultimate. You know, when presented by the newspaper articles of the early fifties, on the whole, there were one or two critical ones, but and also mainly through his own autobiographies, of which there are a number, all the same thing rehashed really, between about nineteen fifty and nineteen seventy something or other. You know, not long before he died, he produced another book. Um, you know, they, they, this, they, they, this, it created this idea of the man of action going in there and showing them how it's done and coming out again unscathed. Yeah. Um, this is what I mean about iconic. Well, there, but, there's also uh, the issue of his, uh, he, he was also known as Scarface. He has that very iconic scar on him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So he, that, he's also photogenic in a way, you know, in a weird he's way. He's very photogenic. Yeah. Well, you, I think you're, you're telling me really how, why he was so superficially attractive to the media. And one of the, what, what, uh, what really pulls Goebbels, the Goebbels era, if you like, sort of promotion to the sort of self-promotion of the successful self-promotion of the fifties to the seventies is his, his period of imprisonment, detention in the late 40s, like most German officers, uh, and certainly the Waffen-SS officers, he was a Waffen-SS officer, you'd be put through detention, a series of interrogations, and uh, it would be decided then whether you were released through a denazification program, which basically was, those Germans had a word for this, personal shine, which is basically a whitewash so you could go back into civil society, denazification process. Um, or you would actually face a further investigation and possibly war crimes trials. And he was certainly, uh, for some time, I think he thought he was going to get away with this. It was unusual to have to stay in prison for about two years. But in the third year, he began to realise that there was going to be a trial. And it has to be said that, you know, the Americans having seized him in Austria at the end of the war, May the 16th, I think he surrendered, 1945, um, they mishandled it. 
they turned it into a media show. They had uh, photographers and journalists there right from the beginning with their, you know, they turned him into a, if he wasn't a celebrity already, he certainly was after that. They turned him into someone who became, here's the key word, a bit of a victim. Uh, he, and what he was trying to do was demonstrate, you, you know, you've got it all, all right, you know, I, I, I fought for Hitler, I fought for Germany, I was a patriot. You misunderstood me. You know, I'm not really a nasty man. I'm not a killer. I'm just an honest soldier. Uh, and finally, he is put on trial uh, in, uh, in uh, 1948. But the charges, I think we can say now, are pretty much trumped up. He's, he's actually uh, investigated for the wrong things. Now, that often happened. The, the system of justice, it was martial law, couldn't be held up to the same standards as US civil justice. But often people were, they were regarded as circumstantially um, evil, culpable, certainly, and many of them were, of course, and they were put away and there was no proper appellate system. So there was a lot of miscarriages of justice. And Scott Saney had every reason to believe when he, was, he came up for trial that he would actually go down and possibly be shot. But again, the Americans mishandled the trial. It was spectacular. There's quite a lot of detail in there. I expect you want to sort of look at the generalities rather than go into that right now. Suffice to say, against all odds, he gets off scot-free, plus his nine co-defendants, who in effect he is, he is the spokesman for them. So he's, he's got 10 men, including himself, off. And this is a spectacular result. It doesn't happen very often, should we say. And it's in all the newspapers once again. So in a way, yeah, Goebbels started this self-publicity business, but he was helped along the way by the, the American prosecutor in the trial, his defense lawyer, who turned him into a star in very different circumstances. And this guy called, uh, this British war hero called, um, it's a bit of a mouthful actually, Forrest Frederick Edward Yeo Thomas, Wing Commander George Cross, you get the general idea. This guy was an epic, he really was an epic war hero on the British side. Um, and he had gone over, you know, he had fought behind the lines. He, he had met Klaus Barbie, although Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon, didn't realise it at the time. So yeah, loads and loads of uh, credit, kudos, you might say, as a British war hero. And he had, in extraordinary circumstances, stood in as a witness for the defence in Scott Sennett's trial. Legally speaking, I don't think it amounted to much, but the moral flavour of his testimony was enough to swing the trial in Scott's in his favour. And uh, that's what happened. And, and he made a good, he, he you know, made an ally of Yo Thomas. Uh, Yo Thomas was out seeing him in Madrid in 1952 and so on and so forth. So he sort of turned the tables in, in a propagandistic way, you might say. Uh, so that's what, the what do you think, not to interrupt you, but what really, do you think the yeah. biggest missteps were in the trial? Well, the trial is quite technical and it, require, it requires me to say something about the operation he was involved in before he was tried, obviously. You'll have heard of, or I'm sure your listeners will have heard of the, of the Battle of the Bulge. This was Hitler's last fling in the West, a big operation. It, it, it involved a quarter of a million uh, men. Um, and uh, Skorzeny had a special role in it. He was to provide a scratch commando force. This was called Panzer Brigade 150. 
And attached to this Panzer Brigade, which was armored, although it had no artillery, that's an important point later, uh, it had a considerable uh, a series of units of Jeeps, about 40 Jeeps. And the idea behind this was that the Germans, uh, the starting point for the operation was just across the Belgian border. It, was between, it took place between, uh, basically between um, Aachen and the northern border of Luxembourg. And what the Hitler's plan was to sort of repeat almost of what had happened in 1940 to, to, to get behind the um, Allied lines, cut them off. So he had a plan. It was Antwerp in, on the coast in seven days. They pushed through. And uh, on day two of this, Skortseni's force had to seize the bridges across the Meuse, which is the first major river. And then within four days of the starting point, the, the Panzergrays, the sort of heavy steam hammer of the German army, had to get over these bridges. So the role he was going to play was pretty important. How was he going to play this? Well, the interesting thing about this was that he was going to dress his men up at Hitler's behest, by the way, this is important too. He didn't just come up with this himself. He's going to dress all his men up in, uh, in, in American army uniforms because it was the American, not the British army that they were facing at this point. The British army was further north and nearer Antwerp. Uh, and it had to be convincing. It wasn't just a question of you know getting a few old jeeps from the recent Allied defeat at Arnhem or something like that. They had to get trucks, tanks. They had to get authentic uniforms, and most importantly of all, certainly as far as the uh, the uh, jeep commanders were concerned, they had to talk and act like the Americans, the, the AMIs as Germans called them, probably still do. So that was a huge task because actually there wasn't. Let's start with the materiel. There wasn't much around because the Germans hadn't been victorious recently. You know, as I mentioned, Armin, that was the one significant victory. They'd seized a few Jeeps from the defeated British forces at the time, but you couldn't easily lay your hands on things like you know, British tanks and so on. They found some, but basically they had to dress up some German tank. They got a few Shermans, the American, the, the, the most um, popular American, the most used American tank at the time. Uh, they got together a few British Cromwells and, um, but then they had to make their own to make up the numbers. They took uh, Panthers, which are a conventional German tank, and they used some sheet metal to make it look like a sort of Sherman-style tank destroyer. It was based on the Sherman chassis, but a slightly subtly different thing. So they built this extraordinary force of falsified um, uh, uh, Allied weapons. Uh, they then set about trying to find fluent German speakers, and uh, sorry, fluent English speakers with an American accent. And this was phenomenally difficult. I mean, after the first appeal, and don't forget they had very little time to do this. Um, after the first appeal, they got about 10 people, mostly former merchant seamen, who could actually speak English with a convincing American accent. They, uh, Scorsini was successful eventually by appealing, you know, pulling strings, appealing to various people, people, for example, who'd worked with um, uh, English speakers in the 1936 um, uh, Berlin Olympics. He got, he got a few more fluent uh, English speakers. But these, the problem with this, these weren't necessarily commanders. They might, they might have been in uniform, but they weren't commanders. So most of the people he recruited, and in order to make this force viable, he had to recruit about 3,000 to turn it into a proper brigade. The, 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 the Jeep unit, though, was the important bit here. What he's going to do is send them through the lines. They were going to cause mayhem among the Americans by you know, destroying um, 
uh, supply dumps, cutting telephone lines, misdirecting forces with, you know, push, putting the signposts in the wrong direction, uh, and getting as far and beyond the actual bridges that the Panzers were going to take in a couple of days' time. Uh, what then happened was that inevitably some of the, they managed to get through after a, 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 a difficult start, they managed to get behind the American lines. A number of them were captured in uniform and interrogated by the Americans. Now, the problem, and this is part of the developing trial situation, was the law on this. You might think a legal uh, view on this is not that important. It's war, all-out war, what does it matter? But actually, at the time, dressing yourself up in, a, in an enemy uniform and then opening fire treacherously and killing, and I'm quoting here the uh, Hague Convention of 1907, no less, which was what all the legalistic jargon was based on, uh, particularly Article 23, uh, was... Uh, an, an offence which would have you shot as a spy. If you could prove, you, it, 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 ridiculous as it seems, a bit of a pantomime, but you know the, the, the military legalists on both sides believe this. And in the West, anyway, not in Russia, this, didn't, this isn't applied. There were no rules on the Eastern Front, but in the West, this was important. You could be arrested in an enemy uniform, but not necessarily shot as long as you didn't open fire. If you opened fire and you were caught, then you would be shot as a spy. That, that was the essence of it. And when it came to oh, the, the other thing that, that, that happened was that when some of these people were captured, the German commandos in American uniforms were captured, they had this extraordinary story to tell, which had been planted. They didn't know whether they were telling the truth, but the truth, the, the, the story leaks out uh, that, in fact, the whole point of them being there was they were preparing the way for a sort of massive, um, what Panzer Brigade and the unit was all about, especially certainly the Jeep Commando unit, was that Scorsanian person was going to lead an expedition to Paris, which at the time was where the uh, Shafe, the Supreme Allied Headquarters, were based, and of course, General Eisenhower was the Supreme Allied commander, and they were going to actually go, you know, straight up to the Trianon, dressed as American soldiers, and uh, kidnap or kill him. Uh, it sounds extraordinary. It was extraordinary. But the Americans believed it. And for about, you know, it's one of the most, it was, it was a successful piece of psychological warfare. Um, the Americans believed it for about a week. They were rushing around, sort of interrogating each other to make sure they weren't, you know, anyone they met wasn't a German in disguise. Uh, and, and Eisenhower was locked in his room and guarded, and he had a body double that uh, was going to take the bullet for him. This right at the, you know, the crux, the crisis of the Battle of the Bulge, when he should, <laughs> when he should have been concentrating on military tactics, not worrying about whether Scorsini and his commanders were about to come and assassinate him. This was something, uh, when the Americans discovered it was a ruse, um, they were not very happy about it. He'd made a monkey of them. And of course, it was a very cynical ploy because he knew and his colleagues knew when they were they were planning and training for this, that this was probably the ultimate use of the commando company. It wasn't its ostensible use. As I said, that was things like sabotage and reconnaissance. But that was the real value of it. And of course, the people who actually divulged this narrative, this story about uh, arresting Eisenhower, paid with their lives. 
uh, some I, I can't remember how many it was, but it, there's a quite a long list of uh, commando company um, um, commandos who were arrested by the Americans over the next month and tried and shot. Uh, something, something like, sorry, I have to kill this. So, um, so it's very cynical, but quite quite successful in its way. But un unfortunately for Scott Saini and everyone else involved in in, in what they called Vox am Rhein, the German code name for the operation, it wasn't a success. They couldn't make the uh, bridges in time, so Scott Saini had to call off his operation. The, the jeep part had been successful, but the the armored uh, units couldn't get through in time, mainly because the tanks couldn't press through in time. The Americans counterattacked successfully, and in the middle of all this, there was a massacre. Now, this massacre involved an iconic, another iconic German soldier, another brute as well, uh, called Jochen Piper, who was a very 29-year-old uh, lieutenant colonel in the Waffen-SS who commanded a, 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 a sort of breakthrough armoured unit that showed some early promise in the campaign. Uh, the early promise is less important than the fact that uh, what happened when he passed a place called Malmedy was that his troops massacred something in the region of 85 Americans who had surrendered. They were poorly armed, you know, they were uh, observation corps or something like that. No one knows exactly who gave the order or indeed exactly which Waffen-SS Waffen uh, troops carried out the execution. But when it came to Scott Saini's trial, one of the key things, one of the key charges against him was, of course, that he'd, he'd broken the rules of the uh, 1907 Hague Convention by allowing his uh, commandos to open fire while in a uniform, and also that he'd been an accessory to this, um, this massacre at Malmody, which was quite untrue, in fact. He wasn't anywhere near it there. But uh, that was the basis of the trial. And uh, that's what he was acquitted of eventually. Because part, part one was that uh, the prosecuting lawyer had brought this charge to get the trial running, the Malmody massacre thing. That was dismissed because there was no evidence linking him to it. They couldn't, I mean, it is incumbent even in a court martial to provide some evidence. It's not all hearsay. Uh, that was dismissed. The other charge, the business of, um, uh, of shooting or, or killing treacherously uh, American servicemen while in American uniforms, uh, that wasn't so easily dismissed, but they couldn't actually find any instance of any Americans who'd actually been killed in a firefight by these troops. So uh, that was dismissed as well eventually. So I want to get into uh, the, the sort of aftermath of World War II, because there's years that he's around after uh, the war. Are, yes. but, but if we could... Uh, just to wrap up on the World War II aspect, uh, what are some of the other operations that uh, Scorzini is involved in? I know he's involved in uh, Operation Long Jump and a few other operations. Uh, could we go over those just briefly here? Okay, we'll try and go over them quite briefly. Um, and then I'll, I'll mark out the important uh, ones. Um, there was an operation called Long Jump uh, on paper. It was very ambitious. Essentially, it was to arrest or assassinate the big three, Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill, when they had a conference in Tehran at the end of November, beginning of December 1943. I say on paper because 
although the Russians to this day insist that something happened and it was um, actually planned by Skorzeny, I could find no real convincing evidence that, that was the case. I think it's got up Russian propaganda. I'm not saying that the Germans wouldn't have liked to have done it, but I simply don't think they had the ability, power, resources to project such an operation outside a you know a sort of in-camera discussion. Anyway, I'm sure sure they talked about it and the possibility of a tempting idea. There were German spies, quite successful German spies in 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 the Persia of the time, but they're in no position with or without commando help to actually launch an assault on them. So I, I think. That's got around. This is part of the Scotseni myth. He denied it himself uh, in, in several of his books. Uh, I simply believe him on that, actually, whatever the Russians may say. There was also something else called Rosselsprung, uh, that's night move in English. This took place in uh, April 1944. And he was marginally involved in this. He would like to have been much more involved in this. This involved the attempted uh, capture uh, and or assassination of Tito, the, um, the uh, leading Yugoslav communist partisan leader, uh, who was on a winning streak by uh, that time. The Germans thought they had uh, cornered him in a place called Devor. Um, and Skorzeny had some important information, which he got from a double agent via the SS intelligence agency for which he ultimately worked. Um, uh, but there was a mix up. I think the military who were involved in this campaign, which uh, bore a superficial similarity, there was a glider raid and so on, to what had happened in uh, Grand Sasso, the rescue of Mussolini. I think that Skorzeny, and this is Skorzeny, the controversialist coming out, the Germans commanding in Yugoslavia at the time were so hostile to him after what he'd done to the Luftwaffe back in, in 43 that they didn't want anything to do with him. Now, of course, you had to, you know, because the SS was the power that, that, that one of the powers that be in Hitler's regime, you had to deal with them. But it didn't mean to say you were open and cooperative when you're a, 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 a senior commander in the Wehrmacht, and they chose not to. And as a result of that, uh, it is fair to say, ironically, that uh, Skorzeny had a single piece of information. I won't go into the detail of it. That might have led them to victory and um, allowed them to bag their man, but they chose to ignore it. So, so great was their hostility. So that operation failed in substance anyway, uh, Tito got away uh, with the help of the British. And uh, what else have we got? We've got uh, various operations in Persia, but I don't think really Scott, so Scott Senny played a small role. He was starting out at the time, this was early 1943, starting out. Um, and I think he didn't really have much to do with the uh, tactical planning of these. He was more in the area of recruitment and they weren't particularly successful. An operation which bears uh, a lot of scrutiny and hasn't really been, um, I think we don't, we don't know the last word on it to this day is something called Operation Peter. Something he didn't- that, That's the one that I think you say in the book, uh, yes. you know, is the most war crimes sort of related one. Yes, I think, the, I think the Allies interrogators could have got him on that if they'd had the will to do it, but they didn't. They clearly knew all about it because I read the, uh, the records on it, interrogation records, and also what they surmised from other people. 
essentially this was a death squad uh but and it and it it was a collaborative issue with the operation with the gestapo it took place or start the operation was launched around about christmas 1943 beginning of january 1944 and it went on until november of that year and what it was the german head ss head of police in um, denmark complained to himmler that you know the the resistance in denmark was getting out of hand denmark had started as a sort of um, showpiece nazi conquest the kind of place that germans wanted to conquer because they kind of respected the danes but that respect fell away over the next two or three years and a, a very successful um, resistance movement from the king downwards um, started to evolve and the Germans didn't really know how to handle it. They hadn't got the troops to send in there because they were getting a lot of pressure on the Eastern Front by then. So the idea was to hatch this uh, sabotage and death squad, which would take out various members, high members uh, of the sabotage Danish culture and take out members of the Danish resistance. And that's what they did. Um, Scott Saney, funnily enough, didn't write about this at all in his books. This is where I mean, you know, all his books were devoid of, shall we say, moral complications because he knew it was a criminal thing. He, at the time it was launched, he was very conveniently on a skiing holiday, the last one he had in the war, you know, the last holiday he had in the war in, in the Austrian Alps. So he, he apparently knew nothing about it. It was all done by his deputy of the time, a man called Adrian von Volkerson. Uh, but uh, there is little doubting, knowing, knowing the fact that the expedition leader was uh, Skorzeny's personal bodyguard during the Grand Sasso operation, uh, and there are a number of other people who had served in the same, who were in, in the same Skorzeny unit, there's um, commando battalion, uh, 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 as have been in the uh, Grand Sasso expedition, there's little doubt that it was indeed Skorzeny sponsored, and they heard, they, they, um, they managed to plan to assassinate someone called Christian Dam, but he was just badly wounded. And they did manage to shoot in most unpleasant circumstances someone called Kai Munk, who was a, a leading Danish priest and a leading Danish resistance figure. And this came back to haunt uh, uh, Otto Schwert, who's the leader of the uh, expedition um, after the war. But um, the Americans, I think they wanted to, it's very difficult to know exactly what happened. They didn't think it was big enough, I think, to pin Skorzeny. They couldn't get the proof. They had their surmise. Uh, but the, da the Danish authorities certainly uh, took it out on Schrott and a number of others who were arrested. A few sort of uh, second or third tier operatives in Operation Peter were handed over to the Danish authorities around about 1949, tried put away for a number of years, but Scott Senny got off scot-free. So that was a pretty important one, all for negative reasons. And once he wouldn't like us disclosed, that's have disclosed. Uh, so uh, I think the biggest thing is the, the biggest thing after Grand Sasso is the one I mentioned, which is his role in, um, in um, Operation Vaktam Rhine. Um, is that also known as Operation Greif or Grief? Yeah, Greif was a subset of Octan Rhine. Okay. It was the Panzer Brigade 150, part of it, and the commando company of, uh, of, of Jeeps. Um, there were a number of other operations. I don't think any of the others had heightened significance. So 
you, you mentioned the character flaws of Scorzini, and I mean, beyond him being, you know, basically an unrepentant Nazi, what do you think those flaws were? Well, he was very aggressive, dogmatic. Um, he wasn't exactly emancipated in his attitude towards women. He regarded them, in the words of his own daughter, as accessories to be disposed of when they were no longer in the use. And he had a lot of girlfriends, serially unfaithful, uh, certainly until he met his third wife, Ilsa Lucia, um, in a very romantically in a, in, a, in a farm tucked on the edges of the Bavarian forest in 1948, I think it was. Yeah, we got married to her in 1954 in Madrid. Um, he was unscrupulous, uh, certainly capable of double dealing in his business affairs. Yeah. Well, how long do you want me to go on? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to get that out of the way. And then I, I wanted to discuss. So, you know, that's the apart from the fact he was a lifelong Nazi. <laughs> he never could. You know, he always uh, right to the end of his life. He went into a television uh, French TF1 television studio. I don't know about two years before he died, something like that. He was assaulted at the time by a former resistance guy. Um, but anyway, the point about this, he's just gone in there and he was, he was trotting out the same old nonsense about, you know, Hitler only, was only brought down because the general staff betrayed him. He's obviously referring basically to the July the 20th plot in which he wasn't involved, but he played a part. Um, uh, you know, this, this old, old trope, uh, popular among uh, Waffen-SS officers and higher Nazis and so on and so forth, that it wasn't really Hitler's fault that Hitler failed. It was the general staff stabbing him in the back. They didn't fight well enough, apparently. Yeah, that, that's the kind of unrepentant guy he was. Uh, the one thing I would say for him uh, is that he uh, is certainly true he was anti-Semitic. Uh, to what extent, don't forget, he was... Um, before the war, he was in the SS. He'd been a member of the SS since 1934, May 1934. He played a role in paramilitary organizations after the unification, was Austrian, so after the unification of um, Austria with Germany in March 1938. Uh, so he was around at the time of Kristallnacht in uh, November 1938, where, well, a whole, a whole scale, worse than a pogrom, really. Um, you know, the, the, the smashing of, of uh, Jewish shops, the arrests, the beatings, and so on and so forth, carried out at Hitler's behest by the then Gestapo leader, uh, Reinhard Heydrich. Um, uh, you know, he, he was on the periphery of that. It was said later on, from information that came to light in the early 60s, that he had personally uh, assisted or been present at the burning of two synagogues although that was never actually proven. But that's the most you can actually... It's, it's hearsay. There's no written uh, evidence of that. It was firmly believed by the well-known Nazi... Um, Nazi... Uh, what do you call him? Investigator, Simon Wiesenthal, that that was the truth. But no written evidence of a legal uh, weight has ever come to light to um, prove that was the case. That is the most you can say that... Otto Skorzeny, anti-Semitic though he was, like most Germans, in fact, like many Europeans at the time, uh, he actually carried out uh, violently anti-Semitic uh, behaviour. He wasn't involved in the, in the Holocaust as such. And indeed, it was on this basis that he was able in later life to uh, cooperate with uh, Mossad. 
Uh, I, I wanted to get into that, but you're getting a little bit ahead because I wanted to talk yeah, a little okay, bit no, about... I, back to you. You do, you do it the way you want. I guess, um, so he escapes, I think, in 1948 from this camp with the help of uh, that, yes, three yeah. former SS officers. Uh, it, it's really interesting because he always maintains that, oh, it was actually the U.S. authorities that helped with the escape. And I, I think there's a lot of stories about Scorzini after the war that feed into this idea that he was part of a sort of underground Nazi international. Um, mm. Could you talk about that and why maybe you have some skepticism towards that? Okay. Uh, well, another one of Scorzini's flaws is he was classically, and you can see this during his military career, a poor organizer. He always led from the front, it's true. He was big on ideas. He had some very interesting ideas in the, in, in the engineering field as well as the military. But he was no master of detail. He always left that to other people. And I would humbly suggest that if you're trying to traffic secretly high-profile Nazis out of Europe into, say, Latin America, then you need to be a superbly good organizer at very least. Now, I'm not saying he didn't at times, an awful lot of people came to his door as guests, um, you know, some undercover, some not, in, in Madrid during the years he was there. I'm not saying he didn't give a helping hand occasionally, but it was a, a, almost casual help. He was a big correspondent. He probably, you know, chatted his friends up in, of which he had an awful lot in uh, Nazi Latin America, um, <laughs> which was most of the republics in those days. And um, they had some kind of affinity to the Nazi regime, so, uh, uh, regime anyway, um, and, and maybe help them on their way. There was a kind of Nazi self-help network which stretched across the Middle East, obviously through Europe, Spain and Portugal in particular, because they were still quasi-fascist uh, regimes who were sympathetic to, to Nazi exiles. And of course, in Latin America, primarily in the early 50s, the... Um, regime of, uh, of of Peron in Argentina, um, which- uh, this, this all ties into something known as uh, the spider or the spin, right? Yes, you're talking about rat lines, really, the spinner, the spider. And, you know, there are some people who've tried over the years to put Scott Saini at the center of this. Uh, I, I'm afraid I failed to find the evidence for it. I, I don't, of, of course he was involved in a sort of form of, um, you know, Masonic camouflage behavior with, with former Nazis. I, I, but I don't think he was involved in the wholesale trafficking of, 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 you know, high profile Nazis. If you want, you know, if you want to look at that, you want to take people like Bishop Hudal in the Vatican. He was certainly involved in it. Draganovic, who's a, who's a, a priest, a, a Catholic priest, uh, Croatian. Um, Clarita Stauffer in Spain, you know, they, they were the masters at this business. Uh, and a lot of people got away as a result of their efforts. I can't actually track one person who has specifically escaped, say, uh, to Latin America as a result of Scorsese's efforts, but maybe I'm lacking the evidence there. So no, he wasn't an organizer. And I think you have to be a good organizer, a good manager to get away with uh, success in this scurrilous and highly secretive business. Wasn't that also the conclusion that uh, a few of the intelligence groups came to when it came to Scorzini post-war, like the, the CIA and um, the Galen organization? 
Yes. Uh, I Well, they tolerated him. I think they decided quite early on that the myth was more than the man, and he wasn't an intelligence asset. He didn't know that much that might be valuable to, say, the Gellin organization. Um, but they had to keep tabs on him. The problem being that he was larger than life, that he was a loose cannon, and also that the Soviets wanted to get hold of him, certainly in the early years. So let's take Gellin, for example. Gellin had actually, Reinhard Gellin, he was to become the future head of the BND. And in the early 50s, he ran pretty much on his own terms at the American taxpayer's expense. An organization which was called, immodestly enough, the uh, Gellin Organization, as if there were only one man in it. Uh, so no ego there. Um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was known in, uh, originally as Rusty after the American agent who helped set him up. And um, it was CIA sponsored. Um, the problem being that after the war, when um, America stepped into the intelligence gap in Europe, that they didn't have anything behind the lines in the Soviet Union, to speak of anyway. And Gellin had come up with all this ready-cooked, uh, oven-ready stuff that he'd amassed during the war because he, he um, headed a rather successful, on the whole, a military intelligence organisation on the Eastern Front. He had the foresight to bury this just before the end of the war in the Barbarian Alps. He went to the America, he surrendered in the American zone, which, you know, anyone with any sense would do because you're more likely to get a fair trial. Immediately put his hand up and say, hey, guys, have I got some intelligence for you? And they bought it and they set him up, helped to set him up in his own organization. That's the that's that's Gellin around about 1950, 52. Now, he had actually worked during the war. Uh, with Scott Saini on, on at least one operation. It was a total failure. And he formed a very, in the on the Eastern Front, the Sherhorn affair, you might call it, but let's not go into that. Um, he formed a very poor uh, opinion of Scott Saini's ability, certainly as a spy. He was, he was a loudmouth. He was incapable of uh, discretion. He was the last thing you would call a secret agent. But he was high profile. He was already iconic in that sense. So Gellin kept a watchful eye on his activities because he didn't he didn't want him particularly interfering with the kind of and you know he was a he's a militant Nazi, Scott Senny. He came back to Germany partly to better his business affairs and create a kind of business bridge between resurgent German industries in in, in Germany itself and you know the, the friendly pariah market of Franco's. Spain, um, but he was also trying to sort of set up private armies, and Gellin didn't want this out of control, so he kept tabs on on um, on Scorsini, and this actually resulted on one occasion in 1948 when he was in this barbarian farm, and Gellin sending one of his agents to tip Scorsini off that he was about to be rumbled and arrested because he was a fugitive from justice at the time, and he escapes to France, where he's protected by the French intelligence service, thanks to probably uh, Yo Thomas's wartime connections and the fact that they were now mates. That's the kind of lucky guy he was. Uh, so that's 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 the Gellin organization. Uh, and the CIA took a sort of fairly relaxed, distanced, nuanced view of him. I think they eventually came to the same opinion as um, Gellin, that he wasn't to be trusted. He was he was he was um, courted, if you like, by the CIA station chief and his staff over the years in 1950s Madrid. 
And there's plenty of documentation on that. But I think, you know, it was a watching brief, really. They didn't. And here we come to the point, you know, was he was he at the center of uh, fascism international, neo-fascism? Well, yeah, he did correspond with people like Sir Oswald Mosley and uh, René Legrue, you know, notorious Nazis. But he was too indiscreet to be running any kind of... Um, <laughs> any kind, and, and that's what people in these fascist organizations said, you know. He works for the Americans, doesn't he? Because you've always seen seen out with American military attaches or something in, in whining and dining them in this favorite restaurant of his called Horchers in, in, in the middle of Madrid. Um, so, he, you know, from the point of view of a, a, a would-be agent, he was a busted flush right from the start. Yeah, I, I was going to say it's interesting. Uh, you know, here, here in the States, you know, I'm interested in, in like organized crime and the history of it and whatnot. But he's almost like there's a parallel there to a a, a mob figure like um, John Gotti, who John Gotti yeah. was like a huge mob boss for the Gambinos, but he was so open about it, it eventually just brought the whole thing down. And yeah. um, obviously, you know, uh, Scorzini is someone who I think probably enjoyed the limelight so much that he would be, uh, you know, uh, a liability. I think you've got it exactly there. Enjoy the limelight and the liability. That that was, as far as the intelligence services of the 50s and 60s were concerned, that was Scorsini. You had to live with him, humor him maybe, but you didn't take him too seriously. He, but on the other hand, he had the ability unmonitored to cause a lot of trouble. So real quick, uh, because I, I just, there were two more things I wanted to get into, but uh, real quick, what was the Soviet interest in him? And they were trying to get at him through, I think his brother, right? Yes, Alfred. Yes. Alfred was the victim here. Alfred, who was about uh, eight years older than uh, Scott, and he'd inherited uh, uh, their father's business. Uh, their father, Anton, was a, was a master builder in Vienna, uh, quite well off. Um, they lived in a very fashionable area of Vienna, Dudling, which eventually was where Scott was buried, is buried. Um, and uh, when... Um, when, Alf, uh, um, when Anton died in 1942, Alfred essentially inherited the business. He was apolitical, as far as I can tell. I mean, the family politics, Scorsini was the, the maverick, the outrider in terms of his politics. They weren't all, you know, fully, uh, fully booked Nazis. I think Anton in the early days thought that Nazis might be quite a good thing because they would unite the country because the Nazi party was in favor of this um, unity with Austria, the German Nazi party, and so were the Austrian Nazis, uh, which in his opinion would lead to economic integration. Now, one of the big problems of Austria and anyone being brought up in Austria in the interwar period was it, it was too small to survive thanks to the Versailles Treaty. There was a lot of resentment. But I think once, um, you know, when Alfred and uh, Anton saw what was going on, the thuggery, the, the, the deception, the, the bully boy tactics, Hitler's determination to occupy the country, they lost interest. Alfred was pretty apolitical. He, he plowed his furrow. But unfortunately for him, Vienna, of course, being part of the Soviet-occupied zone at the end of the war, even though it became a four-part area later, he was arrested and taken to uh, Russia, where he was kept in a prison camp, I think until 1955, through no real fault of his own, other than the fact that his surname was Skortseni. So yes, they were trying, they were trying to lure Skortseni, but he was never, he was never quite certain whether they were, he said, he said, um, you know, in the early 50s, he, he said to one of his contacts that he'd been 
there had been something like five or six attempted assassinations by Soviet agents on him uh, since, since the war, and while well, he was in internment. Um, but the other side of this was, I think that at the time, the Soviet Union saw him also as a trophy. There were various, on the Soviet side, we've talked about you know, what the Americans were interested in, in terms of war crimes. The, the Soviet-sponsored uh, government of Czechoslovakia after the war attempted to extradite him from the American zone. They didn't succeed, of course, but they claimed he committed war crimes at the end of the war in Slovakia, essentially, which was a horrendous place to be in 1944-45, it's true. But in fact, I think this was a trumped-up charge, largely. There, there were units of his that were operating in that area, but that, that didn't make him personally culpable for everything they did. And he wasn't in the area himself, but so he was worried that he was going to be extradited. And then he could, you know, it would hardly be a fair trial in the Soviet zone. They, they would decide entirely whether he was to be shot or, contrarily, rehabilitated as some sort of youth leader figure in the Eastern Bloc, a sort of iconic trophy. But he, he didn't know what the outcome would be, and he wasn't interested in living in the Eastern Bloc. So he did everything he could to avoid it, including escaping from Darmstadt, the denazification camp. That's why I don't like that. So if we could, uh, we had mentioned the whole Mossad story, and that's gotten more and more coverage over the years. The Mossad story. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. uh, Yeah. Uh, Yes. Okay. Now, this again, I'm sorry about this, but there needs to be a little bit of background. Uh, Scott Saini was uh, a friend to some degree of uh, Abdul Gamal Nasser, or is it Gamal Abdul Nasser? Nasser, anyway, the leader of Egypt. And uh, he'd been out there, he tried to get a military contract to um, uh, run a commando unit when the British were still in the canal zone, was sort of aimed at throwing the British out. Hadn't succeeded, but he had managed to secure some business contacts out there and the lasting friendship of NASA. In the early 60s, NASA had um, decided that he wanted to have a pop at Israel with a new missile program. And what he did was import a lot of German missile scientists. They're essentially the sort of drag ends of those who'd worked in Pienemunder on the V1 and V2 in the, during the war years. They're obviously at a discount. Hello? Yeah, okay. Uh, they're obviously at a discount. And uh, Skortseni happened to know the... German, former German Waffen-SS officer who was in charge of the security detail of these German rocket scientists. Mossad decided, Issa Harrell was the head of Mossad at the time, Harrell decided that after this sort of really rather dirty publicity campaign aimed against Germany and the so-called Nazi rocket science working against Israel's interests in, in Egypt, that um, they that they, they, they ought to um try and well actually Harrell ended up blowing it. He had to resign, but his successor decided to try to try another tactic. He, what they were going to try and do was um instead of outright terrorism in German ranks, they would persuade uh Skotseni, the former commanding officer of this guy who was called Valentin, to um 
did, well, to basically to turn, turn him and get him to put pressure of an unspecified nature on, um, on the German scientists to break their contracts and cease working for NASA. That's essentially what happened. And in the process of this, um, so it is said, according to the memoirs of various Mossad agents who were allegedly involved in this, of course, you know, getting to the truth of the matter is quite hard, but I think there's a core of truth in this. There's someone called Ahitov, who's now dead, I think, who was the head of the um, German, sorry, the uh, Israeli Mossad station in Berlin in the early 60s. He was put onto this operation. He made personal contact with a colleague of uh, Scott Sony's in Madrid. I actually met him. They discussed the Holocaust uh, for a while and this business of burning down the two synagogues I mentioned earlier, but decided after all, they probably could work together. And basically, what was Scott Sony getting out of this? Well, he was, even for a big uh, fearless guy like him, he's pretty frightened that Mossad had turned up as his doorstep in Madrid. Uh, so what they did was they promised him a freedom from fear contract uh, signed by the um, um, the um, Israeli uh, president who'd succeeded um, David Ben-Gurion, uh, which he did get, in return for which he was to lean on Valentin. And also, could they, you know, bug his flat and could he invite some of these German scientists back to Madrid? Uh, and he did, he allowed them to do it. And uh, lots of useful information which allowed them to further sabotage the, uh, the, the Egypt project, NASA's Egypt project, um, was put on tape. So that, that's, that is the essence of the story. There are variants on it, and it's quite hard to prove or disprove them. So the, the very last thing I wanted to touch on, in your epilogue uh, for, for uh, The Devil's Disciple, you write, Otto Scorzini died a very wealthy man. Uh, and you say that purely in monetary terms, his bank accounts in Germany, Switzerland, Spain, and the United States yielded $3 million, the equivalent of over $13 million today. So how does this unrepentant Nazi who's involved with Third Reich uh, end up dying uh, with uh, a, a good deal of wealth? That's an extraordinarily good question. Um, but let's have a go at answering some of that. Let's start, let's start at the beginning of this wealth issue. Uh, the, I mean, one strand you haven't pursued here is, is um, Nazi jewellery, Nazi loot, which... Scorsini, among others, was supposed to have seized at the end of the war. Um, no, I don't think so in substance. Uh, he ended the war in um, uh, something called the Alpenfestung, which was a sort of fortress area in the west of Austria. And a lot of stuff from the um, Reichsbank, which was destined for use of the... SS, Foreign Intelligence Service, for which he worked, a lot of currency exchange and stuff, was moved surreptitiously into this area because it was the last area that was, that was occupied by Germans. He, he was offered uh, quite a lot of stuff, you know, foreign currency, gold, um, uh, Reichsmarks, uh, jewellery stolen from Jews, that, you know, gold, gold melted down from their teeth, that, that kind of stuff. There's no great evidence that he... Um, if he did get any of this, he spent it very quickly because by the time he got to um, Spain in 1950, 
every piece of evidence from witnesses who knew him at the time suggests he was very poor. And he was pretty dependent before he got his business going on the protection of the uh, Franco's general staff. They found him a, a flat and supplied his basic needs. And, you know, the America, the America, his American contacts at the time from the Madrid uh, embassy, the CIA contacts, it was said, you know, he was pretty much anyway. If he brought along a decent bottle of whiskey, you know, he'd pretty much do anything for you. And, I mean, there was a sort of sincere... Uh, the sincere Percy from this, I think, is that he really didn't have much money. So he hadn't, he hadn't, he didn't gain his money from squirreling away, I don't know, Jewish loot or something at the end of the war. Plenty of people did, and uh, there's no knowing in many cases where all this money went. But I don't think he, he may have got a little bit of it, but not very much, not a lot, not enough to last him a lifetime, certainly. So where did he get his money from? Well, he got his money from initially from writing his books. And uh, to give an example, um, he um, he sold the he brought out Geheim Commando, the first book in in in, in Germany in 1950, uh, and very shortly afterwards he um, he sold the rights um, um, to um, Le Figaro in Paris. Obviously, someone else did the translation for him. Uh, a serialization of it, which actually, when it got out, created a riot in Paris. I mean, this is the kind of bloke he was, you know. Uh, yeah, I think there, there was riots by the communists in, in France after the... That's right, yeah. Well, it got out. and the, the, uh, the, I mean, it, um, France was on the verge, as people saw it at the time, of a potential communist takeover. Uh, it was very polarized politics. The, 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 the Communist Party was very militant about this, a riot ensued outside the offices of Le Figaro, even though they went through with it. And it went on for about three days and something up to, up, up to a thousand French policemen were involved in putting it down over this period. You know, it was a really serious thing. And all this because someone had spotted Scott Sini walked down the Champs-Élysées with his future wife, uh, Ilsa, and, and identified who he was. And um, they didn't know the half of it. They didn't know he'd been shielded by the French, one of the French intelligence services, but never mind. They knew, he, they found out he was writing his memoirs and it was seen as scandalous. So he had to leave the country. Um, so he earned a certain amount of money. I think he earned the equivalent today of about 200,000 euros for, for the serialization rights. So there were one or two other things like this. There's a magazine called Quick. He did a one or two article, or he did an article for Der Spiegel. You know, a whole a bunch of things. So he's, he sort of turned himself into a journalist in the early 50s. But his business affairs, uh, once he got to Madrid, took a, he set up an engineering office. And there was an experimental side to this which involved things like, and this is where he was quite sort of far-sighted, as, you know, interested in technology in itself. You know, the, you know, the themes that come out of this, they are peripheral, but they come out of all the same, things like wind power and solar energy, which is quite advanced thinking, I think, in the early 50s. But essentially, it was heavy engineering. And what I mean by that is steel and cement. He built up a, a very credible business, quite legitimate business, You helping to build up, as I said earlier, um, German business stock in uh, Franco's Spain, because it was hard for them to expand elsewhere uh, at the time. Um, and he also got on the right side of the Americans, because there was a highly significant treaty signed in 1952, so, no, sorry, I think it was September 1953, actually, uh, called the Pact of Madrid. It was a bilateral agreement, stopped short of Spain joining NATO, but it allowed Americans in, 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 in the Americans to um, uh, in, in 
in return for lots of economic and military aid to build air bases all over Spain. And Scorsini was involved in supplying steel and concrete as a middleman, a commission agent on all this stuff, because he knew, you know, he knew lots of German businesses which would provide this stuff at a, a very good rate. He also had, um, in the cement business, he had very good contacts in North Africa, which are quite interesting, but I don't think we've got time for that now. Is, so, is there anything uh, to be said about I guess he had a, a private security group called the Paladin Group and also yes, the that arms trafficking. Okay. Yeah, that came later. Yes, that was more, a, I think, more a hobby. I'm sure that, you know, when you got a contract, it paid well. There is a suspicion that this unit, which was essentially for a sort of strategic assault unit and a, a center for training mercenaries of all kinds, uh, you know, prepared to fight all over the world. There was a suspicion this was used, this was encouraged and used by the Spanish government of the time as a, as a deniable assassination force against the Basques, but it'd be difficult. The records, I'm sure they exist, but it's impossible to get to them at the moment. It's that sensitive still. So, uh, yeah, I think Paladin certainly existed. It was set up about 1970, but you have to remember that in 1970, Scott Seney became critically ill uh, with the disease, uh, the cancer that would eventually kill him. So I think he might have had a sort of godfather-like role and certainly interests in the various contracts that were involved, but I don't think he would have played a hands-on role uh, with that. What he was involved in intimately and uh, uh, not very salubriously in the uh, late 50s and 60s was arms dealing. He tried this out with NASA in Egypt with not much success. I think his, 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 the impression I got is the strength of his contact with Egypt was more commercial eventually. Uh, but he had some success in Latin America through this sort of network of Nazi comrades, while Hans Ulrich Rudel, for example, Walter Rolf in Chile, uh, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and um, perhaps most notoriously, um, Klaus Altman, formerly known as Barbie, the butcher of Seville, of, sorry, of um, Lyon, who was, um, who was in Bolivia. Uh, and they were certainly involved. He was particularly involved, it seems, in trying to peddle various armaments to the Peruvian military dictatorship at the time. Uh, but he seems to have been more widely involved but I think probably as a peripheral influence, because he was based in Madrid, not on the spot, unlike these other people I've mentioned, um, in, in a company called Merix, which was run by probably the most successful arms dealer of the uh, later 20th century, someone called Gerhard Mertens, whom he had met actually in the early 50s. And Mertens, Mertens' career and uh, military career and... Um, Scorsini's didn't coincide other than the fact they were both Ritter Cross holders, you know, the highest uh, gallantry medal uh, in, in the German army of the time. Um, but they met in Egypt after the war. To what effect, I don't know. But um, Scorsini was certainly involved in the Merix uh, circle. So in closing here, it sounds like Scorsini uh, was involved in a lot of things post-World War II, but this idea that he was at the sort of center of, of uh, post-war Nazi networking may be a bit of um, a stretch. Yeah. Even if there yeah. was that Nazi networking going on, it may be a red herring uh, to say that he was at the center of it. 
I don't think it was as organized as some people make out. Uh, I think there was a form of Freemasonry about it. Yes, he did have some uh, pretty notorious friends, uh, many of which worked, lived and worked on a different continent to him. So it was mainly correspondence rather than personal visits, though he did visit uh, Latin America on several occasions. Um, I think as much as anything, it was business. They were tied together, they were in the same position, they were sympathetic, they could trust each other. And as I say, I mean, Scott Saney, for example, through his contacts, landed an extremely important uh, cement contract, entirely legitimate as far as I can see, um, in the Canary Islands in the early 60s, which, which was when it was undergoing its sort of launch into uh, mass tourism. So, you know, there were things like that. There was the gun running. Yes, that went on on the side, but I don't think he, he was certainly not in the same, uh, on the same level of competence and skill in, in, in uh, the national, international armaments trade as, as Gerhard Mertens, for example. Um, but of course, you probably don't have to sell many weapons to make a lot of money out of it. Uh, the other thing that I should say is that Ilsa herself was a very successful businesswoman, probably a lot sharper than he was. He had the contacts and the sort of um, the sheer, uh, you know, tenacity, uh, determination to bring things about, uh, huge amounts of vitality. But she had the acumen. And uh, one of the things she did was she went into property, legitimate property, as far as I can tell, in a big way. She invested in all sorts of places. Uh, I mean, I've mentioned um, the south of France and the Bahamas, I think the American property market as well. I mean, Scott Saini couldn't um, visit the United States because he was on the caution list that people were quite prepared to read his books and have them published there. Bit of hypocrisy there, but never mind. Um, but uh, his wife, on the contrary, had a clean sheet, and she had a, and here's an interesting piece of uh, Scott Saini anecdote. She had a younger sister called Gertrude Elizabeth uh, Lucia, I think her, her maiden name was, but she was married to someone called Sidney Barnett in New York, in Manhattan, a successful furrier, fur trade dealer. And the interesting thing about um, about Gertrude, which well, she's a war bride, and um, uh, we talked a little bit about um, Scott Senior's attitude towards Jews. Well, uh, he was Jewish, <laughs> so he had a Jewish brother-in-law. <laughs> but I'm not sure whether he ever actually met him. <laughs> so uh, I, I know I've kept you a little bit overly long here, and I apologize for that. But I, I can't let you go. Don't worry. Without... I mean, I, I know it's uh, rambling a little bit, but I hope you're getting the. Well, the, I, I, the, I just had to get one more thing in here because I, I almost forgot it, and I think my listeners are going to want to hear about it. What is the connection between Otto Scorzini and Ian Fleming's James Bond series? Right. Well, Ian Fleming, as far as I know, never met Otto Scorzini, but he was in naval intelligence during the war. So he was an intelligence officer. He roughly understood how it all worked. Um, after the war, he wrote uh, one of his James Bond novels, uh, which I think came out in 1955, was called Moonraker. And the hero, or anti-hero, I should say, in that uh, is called someone called Hugo Drax, who's a very successful businessman with a German accent who's seriously settled in England. Um, what he is, and, and he has this huge scar down the left-hand side of his face. And it turns out that when Bond starts sort of looking into his background and what he might be up to, 
uh, that he has formally fought for, indeed, Otto Skortseni's Verbander, as the commando forces were called, uh, with something called Werwolf, which was a sort of undercover stay-behind organization set up by Himmler, with which uh, Skortseni had to cooperate unwillingly. And that th they, they fought at the Battle of the Bulge. Well, um, Skortseni had to... In other words, there are a number of instances where, although uh, it's not Skortseni himself is depicting, Drax is very like Skortseni. He's, he's sort of loud-mouthed, ostentatious, charismatic, smokes a lot. You know, these are all traits of uh, Skortseni himself. And, and he's turned out to be a very wealthy, a seriously wealthy businessman after the war. Well, bingo. There's Scotsani in 1955, a very successful businessman in Madrid. So I think there's more than a casual um, link between the two. But in addition to that is the interesting backstory of um, what, um, what Drax is apparently up to. Drax has planned, if I remember rightly, to bomb London or is threatening to bomb London with a modified V2 rocket. I mean, maybe your knowledge of the plot is better than mine. Maybe you've read it recently. I haven't. Um, and it just happens that Skortseni himself in uh, the middle months of 1944 was intimately involved in indeed pushing um, a project to um, man the V, not the V2, but the V1 rocket. This was technically possible, by the way, and they got it into the air. The idea was that Germany was so much on its uppers at the time and they were imminently expecting in April 1944 a landing on the, on, the, on the beaches of northern France, most probably, but they didn't know where exactly. And this was just one of these sort of um, miracle weapons, which in the hands of skilled pilots who were prepared to sacrifice themselves, it was called the Leonidas Squadron, they could aim these things at slow-moving targets like, you know, battleships, destroyers, or bombers, for that matter, fleet, fleets of bombers. Uh, Technically, they weren't suicide pilots because they were supposed to eject at the last minute. But everyone who was involved in this knew that the minute you raised the canopy on the V1, the act of getting your parachute uh, pack out would upset the stability of the jet motor behind you. So you didn't stand a chance. Well, one percent chance, I think, was quoted. But he was involved in 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 putting this together with um, the other. The, his collaborator in this was someone called Hannah Reich. Um, who, uh, uh, well, arguably, uh, she's one of the greatest test pilots who's ever lived. I mean, she, she was the one. Uh, several test pilots tried to, to, to pilot these things, which was called, it's called the Reichenberg Project, the, these modified v, V1s for, for human, you know, human pilots. Um, I think two of the pilots tried them, skillful pilots, but they crashed them. And she said, look, you know, you know, you've got to have experience of a jet plane. I've flown a jet plane. She'd flown the experimental comet and, in fact, crashed in it, but recovered. Uh, she said, you know, the stall speed of a jet engine is very different to a piston-driven engine. It is much higher. So you need to put me in the, in the driving seat. And Scott Saini was against this idea because he knew what the consequences would be if she died. Hitler would find out she was Hitler's pinup, and Hitler would then be told that he's been specifically told not to put her in the driving seat. But she did it anyway because she was willful like him. And she successfully piloted, piloted the thing, brought it down on skids. So um, that, that, that was the story. It, it, it petered out eventually because, essentially, because of a, an aviation fuel crisis towards the end of 1944. Uh, it was experimental. 
his time had passed because it was really meant for a time when he might have done something as a terror weapon against the Allied landing, and that was long past. So that was the end of the story. But a few of these things have been or were recovered after the war and put in museums and still are there, I'm sure. Well, I want to thank you again, Stuart Smith, uh, for joining me to talk about Otto Scorzini, The Devil's Disciple. Uh, can you let my listeners know how they can get a hold of the book? And is is there anything you hope that my listeners get out of the conversation we've had? Uh, or w- what do you want them to get out of the book if they happen to read it? Well, uh, we come in on this conversation from many angles. And that, that was the nature of the man himself. I think there are lots of facets to his story. It is a fascinating story. When you think you know something about him, you find something else, a new document turns up. I don't pretend to have written the definitive book on it, but I tried to look at all the angles, good and bad, about the man and why he was such a successful celebrity. Because let's face it, that's what he was. He might have been in a fancy dress, Waffen SS uniform, but he was a celebrity of a different kind. So that's why I want you to get out of the book, really. And where do you get it? Well, best place to start is Amazon. Devil's Disciple. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stuart Smith, author of Otto Skorzeny, The Devil's Disciple. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. In the next day, I'll be posting a new feature for Patreon supporters at the $5 tier and above with C. Derek Varn. We're going to be doing a monthly show covering current events and whatever else we fancy talking about in our marathon conversations, so you'll have that to look forward to at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.